Good afternoon, everybody, and um, welcome uh, to this webinar on online opportunities for children. Uh, my name is Sonia Livingstone, and I'm a professor at Media at LSE, and I lead the um, theories work package of a European Commission H2020 funded project called CORE, Children Online Research and Evidence, and this is hosting this webinar. Um, for myself, I also lead the um, Global Kids Online um, project with UNICEF and the Digital Futures Commission with the Five Rights Foundation, um, all of which research feeds into my curiosity uh, to have this conversation today about children's online opportunities. And so I'm delighted to be chairing today what is in fact the sixth and last in a series of um, webinars. So our previous webinars have addressed multidimensional or multidimensional, multidisciplinary theories of children's um, well-being, uh, their digital skills and literacies, what we call the four C's of online risk, the nature of the digital environment itself, and we held a debate among the four projects funded by the European Commission, of which CORE is a part, uh, together uh, representing a significant uh, investment in research to understand digital technologies in the lives of children and young people. So you can find the recordings for all of these and blog posts summarising their key points at um, core-evidence.eu. In each webinar, because this is a, um, a theory project really, we're keen to consider debates, um, define the issues, identify the points of disagreement, assumptions and contextualisation and priorities that underpin the different perspectives of those trying to think about um, children's online experiences. Um, and to that end, we very much welcome your uh, questions and suggestions in the Q&A box of this Zoom webinar. Um, I think it's now, everyone is now Zoom literate. I think you'll know that this webinar is being uh, recorded and it's also being live streamed on Facebook by LSE with the support of Media at LSE. And ultimately, uh, the recording will be posted on the CORE website with the others as part of our theory toolkit. So the toolkit is designed to provide kind of conceptual and theoretical starting points, resources and discussions for researchers across Europe and beyond, centred on, though not restricted to, the study of children and young people's digital lives. And the toolkit will be soft launched by the end of this year, so we hope it's going to be um, of use. So to today's topic, why online opportunities and what do we mean by these? An obvious starting point might be to ask why a society invested so much in children's access to digital technologies? What opportunities are expected? How should we frame them? What theory aids our thinking here or perhaps informs our critique of the expectations of others? Then, given huge attention to the online risk agenda and the call to protect children from the internet and all it brings, how can we develop a more holistic approach? And again, in what terms and to what end? So today's discussion is designed to be deliberately open and inclusive, asking what opportunities matter and to whom. Um, are there disagreements, perhaps between children and adults or industry and school or, well, Anyway, opportunities as perceived by whom is our question. 
Certainly when consulted, children are enthusiastic in calling for a very wide range of online opportunities, uh, often seeing that in terms of their rights in relation to the digital environment. So shall we take our lead from them? I'm aware the word opportunity is a bit vague, um, but our intention is to avoid assuming that all opportunities necessarily bring tangible benefits, just as online risks may or may not result in actual harm. So this kind of separation of the notion of opportunities from benefits raises the question of how we conceptualize and research the pathways to beneficial outcomes. And it also uh, highlights the mediating role of socioeconomic and other inequalities. So then we might ask opportunities as enjoyed by whom? What's the researcher's role? Um, is it to define and measure and describe children's online opportunities? Or is it to theorize them according to particular intellectual disciplines and frameworks? Or even to advocate for particular opportunities, taking a more normative or political stance? Uh, my last question, um, I'm giving you all the questions on my mind. Uh, how should we integrate our theories and concepts across diverse spheres? So if we think of opportunities for learning, information, health, development, play, social relations, civic engagement, all of these kind of pulls us into different directions. Each sphere takes us into a different research literature. And yet the child or children and childhood serve to link them all. So we've invited today's speakers to advance our thinking in relation to these and whatever other questions might be on their minds. And let me introduce them in the order that they'll speak. Shakuntala Banaji is Professor of Media, Culture and Social Change in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE, an expert in media education, communication and development and more. Her two latest books are Children and Media in India, and Youth Active Citizenship in Europe. And her next book, Social Media Hate with Ram Bhatt, theorizes the landscape of disinformation and trolling in the UK, India, Brazil, and Myanmar. Cohen Lers is an assistant professor in gender and post-colonial studies at the Department of Media and Culture, Utrecht University. He recently directed the project Connected Migrants and Media Literacy Through Making Media, and his first book is Digital Passages, Migrant Youth 2.0, Diaspora, Gender and Youth Cultural Intersections. And he's currently a fellow at the Netherlands Institute of Advanced Studies, writing a book on digital migration. Giovanna Mascheroni is Associate Professor at the Department of Communication and Performing Arts in the Catholic University of Milan, where she leads a project called Data Child Futures. And she's part of the management team of EU Kids Online and another H2020 project, Why Skills. She's just completed a book with Andrea Seebach called Datified Childhoods, Data Practices and Imaginaries in Children's Lives to be published soon. Um, and uh, Jochen Peter um, is a full professor at the Amsterdam School of Communication Research, University of Amsterdam, and has published over 100 articles and chapters exploring how young people's use of new technologies affects their psychosocial development. He's published on children's interaction with social robots, the impact of online communication on, te on teenagers' sociality, and the relationship between sexually explicit material online and adolescent sexual attitudes and behaviour.
So we've asked our speakers each to take um, five to seven minutes to set out how they conceptualize online opportunities for children. And then we'll have a conversational round of input from the speakers to consider whether they want to respond to each other. And we'll then open up the discussion to include your questions in the Q&A. Our discussant is Maria Stoilova, a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE, and her area of expertise is at the intersection of child rights and digital technology, with a particular focus on the opportunities and risks of digital media use in the everyday lives of children and young people, as well as researching data and privacy online, digital skills and pathways to harm and well-being. So Maria will keep an eye on your questions and bring them to the attention of the other speakers in due course. Meanwhile, um, please feel free to tweet or post on social media using the hashtag CoreH2020 and um, hashtag LSE Children. So I'm going at this point um, to turn the floor uh, to Shaku and um, welcome your contribution. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sonia, Maria, and colleagues at CORE. It's a real pleasure to be here as part of this interesting discussion, obviously on a topic which is very close to my heart. Um, in my work with children and media over the past 20 years, and in particular with digital media and the internet, I've always been really interested in the tensions between constraint and opportunity. So this is a great way of putting to the test some of the more theoretical ideas I have around how structure and agency function in relation to opportunity. And these are some of the parameters that I hope to talk about today and which I've tended to theorize in this area. It's become a kind of commonplace to use the term empowerment to discuss in very optimistic ways what happens to people, particularly children in the global south. And I'll just pause for a second here to ask um, if my slides could come on here. Um, children in the Global South, there is a discourse around empowerment, about how um, development and, and ICT for D are going to come in and change the ways in which children can do things like voice their opinions or participate in social and political movements. And all of these, in my view, are associated with the core theoretical concept of agency. So let me just briefly outline why I think agency is so interesting in relation to opportunity as a theoretical lens. And it's really the first concept I'd like to discuss today, perhaps the first of many, but we'll see how I can do in seven minutes. Well, let's take a step back and really unpack what agency means to me and what agency means to you so that we know we're talking about the same thing. For instance, when I was reading a lot of the scholarship between 2010 and 2015 on children's political empowerment and young people's participation for the books, which Sonia just mentioned, there seemed to be a suggestion in that literature that the use of digital media was empowering because it allowed children and young people to take control over aspects of their lives, which they might otherwise have had no control over or very little. And it allowed them to participate and raise their voices over political issues that they could not have accessed previously, perhaps due to financial or geographic or power constraints. This implied in that reading an understanding of agency as the ability to take positive action for oneself and for others without constraint. 
It's a very simplified definition, and there are many more complex ones which look at the notion of temporality and whether agency is something which one feels at a particular moment or whether you are imbued with agency forever once you've taken an action um, on your own and so on and so forth. But much of that writing about digital agency also implied but did not state explicitly that agency including that agency which comes from using social media and digital tools and or the internet more broadly, was only agency when it was being deployed in resistant ways against unfair or unethical practices or in favor of justice. And no doubt we can see examples of this positive version of agency. For instance, in the organization of Fridays for the Future around climate change, um, particularly the way in which it's now moved from the global north to the global south. As my third slide um, shows a very, very famous, now um, the next, so it's the next slide, it shows a very famous young activist, Lissi Priya from India, who has, who's at, at the age of six joined the climate change movement and by now has been really successful at mobilizing hugely around the COVID crisis in India using digital technologies, using the platform that she's built for herself on Twitter, obviously with the support of various adults around her. And you could consider this to be um, the exact epitome of the positive notion of agency that we talked about at the beginning. Of course, and there's no doubt that one can see plenty of other examples like this with the use of Snapchat and Instagram during lockdown and so on and so forth. However, what I was also seeing in my research across the years, um, both in India and in Europe, was a very different and more complex picture of what children and young people were doing and feeling around digital media and their everyday lives, which led me to want to re-theorize the notion of agency. For one thing, many children in India, and I use the term here very loosely to indicate those between 14 and four years old that I was studying had no independent access to phones or other means of getting on the internet. And they were certainly constrained by poverty, by religion, by race and parental authority far more in that domain than they were when maybe playing on the streets or even when trying to earn a living and look after their younger siblings. So there were areas in which they were extremely agentic and other areas in which they were not so agentic. And the domain of social media and the Internet was one where they had less agency or relatively less so. But what I also observed was that a lot of what was going on online amongst middle class children and was being experienced as agency was not necessarily pro-social or pro-democratic. And it might well have fallen into that category, which Marxists like myself define as social reproduction in the sense that it was reproducing cultural codes, reproducing the structures of society in very particular ways and maintaining certain unequal social formations. I could say it was being used to police femininity and masculinity, for instance, very much around in the 14 year old age group. In fact, what was going on online at the hands of some children and young people was often messing with the health and mental health of many children and young people. We all know now about cyberbullying. It's a term we use commonly in the classroom, but this was actually less obvious and more insidious as a form of action. And it involved children, primarily urban upper caste boys, in practices of racism and casteism and misogyny, which were targeted at entire groups. India, as some of you may know, is going through a very repressive period of governance. The discourses that these boys reproduced, the language that they used, the memes they shared, and the joy that they evinced at the failure 
of well-known women or Muslims or darker skinned people in various formats online, memes, GIFs, little videos, TikToks, was absolutely visceral. And I have to pause here to say, they spoke about the experience of making these things and putting them out on the internet as an opportunity. They had an opportunity to platform their hate. The misinformation trotted out to me by these young people and shown to me on a regular basis was powerful stuff. Some of it verg verging on the pornographic, other others verging on the fascistic, and all of this they were very pleased with. These kinds of attitudes and actions were not compelled by others. Therefore, we must consider them to be agentic. No adult was forcing them. They had, of course, been socialized into these racist and xenophobic mindsets, but they were taking ownership of the technology and of the ideas. They were buying into them. And this too was a form of agency, just as the occasional glimpses of activity or freedom that girls and young women or young LGBTQ youth felt when anonymous online, playing online games, and so on and so forth. Notably, interviews with these boys and some girls revealed that they felt powerful doing this kind of resourceful conservation, using whatever resources they had, whether they were digital or non-digital. This led me to theorize one form of agency as being contaminated and another form of agency as being ephemeral or passing. And the digital sphere gives rise to both these forms, but also scholarship on this sphere, when it just talks about opportunity and digital agency, somehow hides and suppresses the acknowledgement of both of those other forms of agency. Technology enables agency, and once a child has had the opportunity to explore their agency in the digital sphere, they are empowered, and that is how they will remain, seems to be the mantra that we hear, particularly in the sphere of development. Rather than sometimes being found, sometimes being agentic, sometimes being disempowered, etc., etc., as so many children today have woken up in the UK, either because they're distressed at the loss of the European cup or because they're distressed at the extreme racism being leveled at their footballers whom they like very much in online fora. One final point I'd like to make before I stop about my theorization of children's opportunities is that many of the children I encountered in Europe and in urban and well-to-do neighborhoods in India do not have the kind of online offline dichotomous thinking that many of us age 25 and upwards tend to have nor do they have the same normative notion of what opportunity means. Their understandings of opportunity, as well as their agentic and privacy practices, were intersectionally linked to their everyday lives through gender, geography, social class, race, sexual orientation, religion, and various levels of physical disability or mental health. And I think it would do all of us good to remember the contexts in which we talk about opportunity and the kind of opportunities and their meaning for those of us in less privileged settings. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you so much, Shaku. Um, I uh, expected a, um, a thoughtful and um, provocative um, introduction uh, to the issues involved and you gave us exactly that. So thanks very much. I'm sure there will be questions and I'll just uh, again invite people to put their questions in the Q&A for when we're uh, ready to come to those. Um, so you ended on the question of um, contexts and um, the importance of remembering the specificity of 
of, of very often very disempowered, but sometimes empowered contexts people live. Um, and um, I think that uh, Cohen is going to um, speak to some specific contexts in relation to um, refugees and migrants, um, perhaps going broader. We'll see what he has to say. So the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. And thanks, uh, Sonia and Maria and Cora for the invitation. Let me also share my screen. Uh, so in the last 15 years, I've conducted creative, digital uh, and participatory fieldwork with over 275 migrants, refugees and expatriate uh, young people. And I focused on the construction of digital identities, but also looked at how rites of passage, for example, from adolescence to adulthood are digitally mediated. So my focus has been mostly on young people between the age of 12 uh, and 18. And in this uh, short intervention, I would like to uh, focus on three conceptual underpinnings, three frameworks, which I find generative um, uh, to understand how young people exactly navigate the digital, navigate the digital uh, to exert uh, their digital identities. And, uh, and like uh, fellow non-mainstream youth, uh, migrant youth are often understood from the perspective of uh, deficiency or lack. Uh, and with the following concepts, uh, I, I believe we can develop an asset-based uh, asset approach to recognize their agency uh, within the broader context of intersecting uh, hierarchical uh, power structures. Let me move to the next slide. Uh, first, there's great uh, scope in taking up the lens of performativity uh, to understand how young migrants articulate their identities vis-a-vis -vis stereotypes, vis-a-vis -vis norms and expectations. Identity stems from the Latin words identitas and idem that can be translated as sameness, simply. So simply put, identification is an expression of being or feeling the same as someone, something, or as a uh, similar to a community. Identification, however, operates always in tandem with difference. So traditionally, reflexive self-making or identity projects revolved around narrative practices, such as, for example, diary writing. Consider how the feminist philosopher Rosie Gray-Dotti or the sociolo sociologist Anthony Gittens write about reflexive identity formation. Uh, following the sociologist Nura Yuval Davis, identity narratives commonly include, I quote, stories that people tell themselves and others about who they are and who they are not, unquote. And digital media in particular have come to play an important role in young people's lives. As Sonia Livingston argues, they are, I quote, expected increasingly to participate in explicit discourses of identity and identity construction, unquote. But how can we now grasp this active process of digital identification, also acknowledging the broader context of power structures? Here we can take cues from feminist post-structural theories on identity performativity. For example, performing one's gender revolves around a twofold dynamic, a capacity to bring one's gender identity into being by carrying out speech and other acts, while uh, relating also to a normative set of prescribed rituals, rules, uh, and norms. Judith Butler famously deconstructed the category of gender uh, by foregrounding that gender identities are to be understood as something that we do rather than something that we are. There are norms, but there is always room for subverting these norms, for playing with these rule, uh, norms and tweaking them. In a similar vein, then, uh, di digital identity performativity focuses not only on how identities become visible online, but more specifically, how they are executed. Following Nisa Nakamura and Peter Chow White, a digital identity performativity, then, is a way of doing things. 
In my fieldwork, I, for example, studied with Media, a 13-year-old Moroccan Dutch girl, how she digitally identified with various groups at the intersections of youth culture, race, sexuality, and religion. This is a snapshot from our profile page on Hives, which was a popular social media platform over a decade ago in the Netherlands in 2009. So here we see the icons of groups that she joined, uh, which showed up on our personal profile page. So like buttons and patches on backpacks or stickers on agendas, these reflect identity work. Uh, she shows feminist interests, Moroccan identification, youth culture, global junk food fashion, and counter Islamophobia by claiming recognition of her headscarf. With, uh, by joining the group, respect is what I ask for the headscarf uh, that I'm wearing. Secondly, uh, I want to turn to the a dramaturgical, a dramaturgical account of identity by looking at uh, Irvin Goffman's work around the front and the backstage, and backstage, or the on and the backstage of performing uh, uh, one's everyday life. So this work dates from 1959 already, but it can be also transposed to account for the doing of identity in a digital context. So Goffman distinguished between actions on the public onstage, uh, which for are for the world to see, and, and the more private backstage, where we do not feel the public gaze, and we can discuss doubts, we can uh, raise questions, and we can dare to experiment. And these two can be related to two important modes of youth connectivity. The private space, which allows for experimenting and discussing one's way of being, and the public onstage, which allows for expression of connectedness to a group and articulating group belonging. Consider, for example, Amani, a 70-year-old Assyrian-Dutch young woman who creates paintings to process her feelings. And through direct messages and private messages, she works these through also online with her close friends, where she shares the paintings. After feeling secure enough, she also publishes uh, her favorite paintings for the broader world to see such as the one uh, that you see on the screen, hashtag schizophrenia. And social media for her, she offers, uh, she mentions, offers a chance, I quote, to explore who I am and what I'm going to do. The notion of context collapse can be used to make sense of how Amani uh, navigates between audiences uh, across online platforms. Following Dana Boyd, context collapse, for example, is what happens at a wedding when various of your social circles come into a contact with each other and this creates often awkward or unexpected or unwanted uh, uh, circumstances. Amani articulates parts of her identity to specifically intended audiences. I quote, sometimes I like to take photos of food, but on Insta, I don't have Syrians who are in Syria. When I would have those people on my account, I wouldn't post those images. You know, there are many people in Syria who don't even have access to food. So inside of the difficulties of building a new life, which includes taking selfies, posting food pics, she also negotiates feeling guilty to have escaped from a war and situations still endured by family and friends. So she actively seeks to avoid uh, uh, various contexts uh, to collapse, grasping opportunities afforded by the digital. A third notion then that I would like to bring out is the notion of the smartphone as a personal digital archive. This is a notion we've been developing together with Mia Georgiou, a colleague at the London School of Economics. And by teasing out smartphone practices through this lens, we can learn more about the interplay between what content uh, of digital identity is stored, archived and carried around uh, on one's body in a smartphone, and what content is published for wider publics to see. The digital archives of the everyday, in the words of David Beer and Roger Burroughs, are unlike formal archives, are peer-to-peer. -peer. They are effectively and ordinarily constituted rather than institutional top-down records. Uh, 
So personal digital archives have a specific materiality, a tangibility, and also a portability, an embodied emotionality, but also a specific politics, ranging very much from the personal and the private uh, to broader publics and communities. Here we can, for example, learn from Patricia, a 15-year-old girl from Aleppo is into badminton and piano. And during our interviews, this manipulated photo from her archive depicting herself and one-and-a-half-month-old baby sister uh, became a point of our discussion. It was one of her pictures dearest to her heart. For her, it signifies both the period of living in separation from her loved ones, but also how she uses Snapchat to maintain a lifeline with her grandparents and best friends still living in Syria. Secondly, Jack, a 16-year-old Syrian young man, shared a stage image of his backpack, which he explains represents his dire desire not to be seen as a refugee, but as a, I quote, regular person in the street. This image is important to him, to him as it also received lots of likes uh, by wider, wider audiences. And finally, uh, at the bottom, we see an image of 70-year-old Syrian Dutch Mohammed, who is into horse riding and rap. He discusses videos he received from his loved ones still living in Syria, showing how his street was bombarded. From his, for him, his phone consists of important records to cope with trauma and loss, but also share with others personal stories of the impact of the civil war. So this was my brief excursion, showing how uh, uh, which critical frameworks for me are generative to theorize digital identification as online opportunities, sometimes against and sometimes along the grain. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Cohen. You've taken us um, into a different space and a different world, and I really um, appreciate that. And I think you've also um, opened up um, a set of questions about how children might kind of claim and enact and perform their um, online opportunities, such as they are, um, as well as elaborating a different set from from um, those that Shaku talked about. Um, so... You also took us into the um, the notion of the affordances of the digital, um, as did Shaku in a different way. And I think that's something that um, Giovanna is going to um, talk to us um, a bit about um, further. So, um, Giovanna, can I pass over to you? And thank you. Thank you, Sonia. And uh, thank you both for uh, you and Maria for inviting me. And thank you. Thanks, Core, for this opportunity. And um, my, um, I approached uh, the topic of play and how children, especially young children, play uh, with uh, digital or digital material uh, toys uh, through my experience with the um, digitality construction. And especially I've been working on this topic with two colleagues that I'd like to thank. Um, first is Liam Berryman, who, who may be uh, actually listening to us in this uh, very moment, and Antonel Holloway, um, who is based in Australia, Australia, so probably is not online with us. Uh, but um, my background is uh, in, uh, in media studies and sociology, which explain uh, the way I approached the topic of digital play and uh, my um, my approach to to the topic is actually um, similar to um, the, the approach to the digital environment that one of the speakers to a prior uh, webinar has theorized uh, Tina Booker will talk about uh, affordances as an, as much as uh, Tina in her work uh, in, in the work that I published with Liam, we looked at um, digital play through the lens of affordances as um, 
affordances in practice, which means actually uh, looking at how um, affordances are uh, negotiated, taken up and enacted in, in social material context. So it means looking at affordances as uh, socially uh, situated and contingent upon a number of conditions. Um, when, when we talk about affordances, we uh, immediately think um, of their functional dimension. So affordances as uh, uh, features, as, as technical um, features uh, of our digital media that uh, enable or constrain uh, certain forms of agency. Uh, but affordances are also uh, fundamentally relational so they depend on, on context, they depend on, on the people who use them and, and so the meanings that are attributed to, um, to, to these uh, technologies, uh, they are in relation with other, um, with other media and, uh, and other artifacts in what uh, has been called an environment of affordances. And, and more importantly, I found illuminating uh, the, uh, the work in uh, science and technology studies, uh, looking at how affordances uh, practically operate uh, in guiding users to uh, take up certain uh, forms of agencies and not others. Um, so there's, there are, uh, there's a continuum of, uh, of ways uh, and different intensity at which affordances uh, can either request or demand certain um, actions from, from the user. They allow, encourage, discourage or refuse uh, practices. Um, so in this framework, and as Sonia said at the very beginning of this webinar, we are looking at the opportunities of digital play as not necessarily beneficial. We know that play, and especially free play, is actually beneficial for children because it's, it allows emotional, cognitive and physical well-being and development. Uh, but it's not necessarily so. It depends on um, how it is actually enacted in, in the everyday life context. And, um, and so the, the, uh, the users, the, the people, uh, the artifacts, the products themselves, but also the, the, the places, the social context in which uh, these devices are taken up matter as uh, Shakuntala um, argued before. Um, and this, is, um, this has been explored um, in a recent publication by the, the Digital Future Commission, the Kaleidoscope on, on Digital Play. Uh, so you, I, I will um, review some of, some of the evidence uh, and, and some of, the, uh, of what I've been writing in, in light also of this uh, Kaleidoscope. So we know that um, digital play is um, not, not every, but digital play um, can be hybrid and hybridity is, uh, is actually another affordance that is linked to the possibility of uh, imaginative play. Um, it's hybrid because it transgresses and reconfigures the boundaries between the digital and the material, the online and the offline, uh, but also between toys and media. 
these um, internet-connected toys become media that mediate um, aspects of everyday life uh, in, uh, in, a, in a precedented way. They, they mediate and record conversations between the child and their toy, um, and, uh, uh, and these open up a lot of challenges. Uh, but they also intersect uh, and transgress the boundaries between the local and the global. So they their um, use and their um, uh, the enactment of the affordances is locally situated, but it's dependent uh, on um, global contingencies. It's dependent on the global economy and um, uh, economy of surveillance uh, that these projects are part of. Um, so the affordances that we observed uh, refer to, uh, first of all, to the liveliness of much of these hybrid playthings. I won't uh, delve much into this because uh, I know that your computer, which uh, will elaborate further on, on social robots. Uh, but um, the point, uh, the reason why I address liveliness uh, here is because liveliness itself is not a pre-given uh, feature, uh, which is... Um, engineered in the, the design of these toys, but liveliness um, is co-constructed by uh, the, the, the technological artifacts and uh, the children playing with it. Uh, so we can look at liveliness um, uh, uh, and the simulation of, uh, of agency, the simulation of, um, uh, of autonomous agency uh, that is embedded and designed into these toys uh, by looking at how children test this, uh, this liveliness. So, for example, in, in my um, research on, on uh, the adoption and the domestication of an internet-conducted toy, uh, which was part of an Australian uh, research project, uh, I've seen uh, children uh, trying to test uh, the extent uh, at which um, the, the, the toy Cosmo responded uh, autonomously or, um, or either controlled uh, by their uh, ability to code and program uh, the, the toy itself. Um, what is more interesting from my point of view is what uh, we call the effective stickiness. Uh, so the, uh, the fact that uh, these toys um, uh, enable in a different way, uh, an emotional bonding between the child and the toy. So this is, again, this is uh, something I, I will elaborate further later on. But this, um, what we observed is that uh, the affordances of uh, hybrid playthings are not uh, entirely new, but they are augmented. Uh, so for example, when it comes to um, affective uh, stickiness, um, we we find that uh, what uh, Sheryl Tarkal uh, called the relational objects are different from uh, the uh, transitional, the traditional transitional objects, because um, in in the latter case, uh, in the case of soft toys and dolls, traditional transitional objects, the child projects his own feelings, her own feelings onto the uh, onto the toy. In this case, instead, it's the the toy that demands uh, care, that demands uh, an emotional bonding from um, from the child. Uh, the, the most emblematic example was the Tamagotchi, uh, 
uh, that eventually died if it was not uh, taken care of and, and nurtured. Um, and this is important because um, uh, this shows how uh, the opportunity is not uh, necessarily beneficial. Um, affected stickiness could actually constrain uh, some features of, uh, of free play, um, which is it's voluntarily and uh, it's... Um, uh, it's uh, interested uh, nature. Uh, free play is taken up by the child and initiated by the child and not by the technology demanding uh, demanding the child to, to take care and, and, and play. Another feature is portability, and, and the, uh, in, this, uh, in this case, I'm very close to what uh, Cohen just said. Um, so uh, digital playthings borrow affordances not only from social robots, but also from mobile communication. And it's important, their material and symbolic portability, because they become a token uh, for peer-to-peer -peer interaction. They are um, repositories uh, for uh, uh, and tools for identity making on one side, but also they are symbolic tokens through which uh, children negotiate their um, belonging to the peer group in a economy of dignity. And uh, finally, adaptability, which is um, uh, a, a fundamental enabler of, um, of free play. Um, so the extent to which uh, the, the toy is pre-programmed with certain activities, but is open uh, for children creativity. Uh, and this also um, uh, shows how much uh, the, the people and the places matter and not only the product, because in this case, um, as much as with many uh, Italian children that I interviewed, they were not uh, very much skilled um, in, in, uh, in, in the programming, the coding of Cosmo, but they were very much creative in, in how to use it. So um, this uh, child, for example, used it as a as a remote, a remotely controlled car, and uh, his mother says uh, it's an in inappropriate, improper use of Cosmo, but indeed it opens up um, free play and it, imagination. So, just to briefly conclude, um, it's um, uh, not entirely new affordances; it's affordances that are um, augmented. Uh, through um, uh, borrowing the, the affordances of uh, mobile media and uh, social robots. Uh, but also one, one more critical aspect is that uh, the way uh, the affordances of digital play operate um, and the way they demand more than uh, allow and encourage um, could actually uh, constrain free play rather than uh, promote it. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you very much, Giovanna. Um, you've taken us into another space again. And um, uh, I know from a children's rights perspective, play is often one of the rights that has been called forgotten. And people are sometimes surprised at the emphasis on the right to play in the um, UN Convention. Um, so it was um, it's, it's good to, to, to focus there um, and clearly is a, is a key opportunity. Um, so, uh, as you said, uh, Jochen and Peter also works on robots, but I think specifically on social robots and is going to kind of take us into the, the social world of um, children and consider the opportunities for sociality. So, uh, Jochen, if I can pass over to you. Thank you. So, thank you very much uh, for the invitation and say a few words about 
social robots and children and potential opportunities. And I believe when we deal with uh, opportunities uh, and growing up in a digital age, it may by now also be important um, to have a look at uh, social uh, robots. Um, they may look um, like this, uh, for example, the dinosaur robot here on the left-hand side uh, called uh, Pleo Furby. Uh, most of you may know it um, here in the center and the, ro the robot dog Aibo. On this side here, you can see uh, on the right-hand side in the center, at least two robots that uh, have more human-like features. And on the left-hand side, you saw it already in uh, Giovanna Mascaroni's uh, presentation. Um, the social robot um, called Cosmo. These are all um, social robots. So they are made to engage in meaningful interactions with humans or children more specifically. Uh, for some, this uh, may simply be science fiction and for others, um, a threat to childhood, an inanimate something machine that enters the world of children. And um, perhaps this concern is even magnified when we think of um, general risks of growing up digitally, for example, a potential violation of children's privacy, surveillance, and security issues. And these risks may even apply more to social robots because they get closer to children, may meet them in many different situations. And of course, they have all kinds of sensors to record data and distribute them, certainly when they are connected to the internet. Now, I'm mentioning this because I think it would be naive to talk about opportunities um, without taking these concerns and problems into account. And yet, um, I believe um, that a balanced approach to social robots may also include opportunities. So I want to briefly deal with three of them. The first is that social robots can improve children's learning. Um, a recent uh, meta-analysis, for example, has shown that uh, social robots can improve children's comprehension of things, their knowledge about them, nearly to the same extent as a human tutor. Social robots also enhance children's attention and responsiveness while learning. Finally, whenever a social robot is tailored to the needs of children, it benefits the children, both in terms of understanding and attention. Um, we've seen um, ourselves and some kind of related research that a robot can also be a model for, of pro-social behavior and can enhance children's pro-social behavior. A second opportunity may be that children can establish relationships with social robots, at least initially, and especially when the robot is somewhat less sophisticated than the child, when it is responsive and when it engages in substantive rather than small talk. I hear I don't, but I can imagine that some of you might now cry, cry out and say, isn't that horrible? And um, this concern is um, also echoed by uh, scholars like Sherry Turkle, um, who has warned um, in this context, Giovanna already mentioned that of relational objects, was warned of relational inauthenticity when children form relationships with social robots. Social robots, after all, are by definition not sentient and may wrongly suggest that they care about children. So from a general perspective, and certainly from what we have what we've learned from other research on digital phenomena, um, I believe that such uh, child-robot relationships may indeed be problematic if they replace human-human relationships, but if they complement rather than 
replace human relationships. Um, if they um, help children to compensate for certain problems they may encounter um, in their real lives. And if children learn positive things in interaction with social robots, certainly when they are educated about the non-sentient nature of robots, I think that that might be worth of considering an opportunity. In this context, I believe it's also important that we do not engage in fallacious thinking by romanticizing human relationships. Many human relationships are unfortunately not as beneficial and fulfilling as we would like them to be. They may be deceptive, manipulative, or even violent and abusive. A third and last opportunity of social robots concerns therapy. Um, there is a um, growing field of research on the positive effects that social robots may have on children on the autism spectrum. I do simplify here, but overall, it seems that children on the autism spectrum feel comfortable in interactions with social robots, possibly because the situation is somewhat less complex and robots send, send out fewer cues than humans in interactions. So these interactions with robots may help children on the autism spectrum to overcome problems they encounter in, in, in interactions with humans. These are three opportunities that social robots may provide to children. To be clear, it is not my uh, goal here to sketch a tech utopia, nor to glorify uh, social robots by any means. There are many biases, and we've heard, for example, uh, about the problems with just um, uh, uh, assuming some naive forms of agency here. Um, there are many conceptual and methodological shortcomings in current research on social robots and children. And most important, social robots themselves suffer from many problems. Um, they are limited, still very limited in what they can do in interactions. And at least this is what our research points to quickly disappoint the high floating expectations of children. But still, I believe it is important to point out already now that there may be next to many risks, also opportunities in what I personally believe will be an important part in children's future and its interaction with robots or more generally with machines. Thank you, Jochen. Um, you've taken us into the future, and uh, I'm, I, for one, am feeling quite um, thoughtful about what that future might involve, and um, indeed what uh, responsibilities uh, adults have to design for particular um, futures, if uh, that's within um, the power of adults so to do. Um, Brilliant. Um, you've set out some very different um, visions. I think there are lots of overlaps. Um, I very much hope that um, for those listening, we have um, succeeded in kind of opening up the idea of opportunities and taking us beyond um, uh, any kind of um, simple list of the things that might be good about technologies for children or things that children might do well with um, uh, technologies and the benefits on offer. Um, and I think you've all kind of taken us um, quite deep into um, children's lives and the diff very different kinds of circumstances that they that they live in. 
Um, so um, we're going to come to questions in a minute. Um, I don't see so many, so I think anyone listening should feel um, uh, empowered to um, uh, ask further questions. Um, we um, we will we'll come to in a minute. But first, um, I wonder if anyone in the panel um, would like to respond to anything that's been said um, so far, and whether you see points of connection or disagreement, perhaps, or where. Uh, the perspective of one approach could be illuminating, perhaps, um, in any of the others. So, just I'll throw it open briefly. I'll I'll go first because I really because obviously I went first and I hadn't heard anybody else. But I was actually really um, sort of impressed by the thread that I found unfolding through all of the presentations, both the caution and I think it's a caution which you know I've been talking about this issue for many years and also with people who design games and digital artifacts for children. And I think that that caution has changed. You know, it's, it's a note which has sounded much more today than maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And in Cohen's discussion of identity work, and it, I think that links very much to the kind of agency or the kind of opportunity that people might have with digital media. So I suppose Cohen, the thing I was thinking while you were you were talking about these presentations of young people was the flip side of that, the surveillance side of that. And also how when we say digital opportunities, the question arises, digital opportunities for whom? There, you know, so so someone tags um, Louis Vuitton in their in their social media profile, and that's an expression of opportunity, but it's also an opportunity for a marketer to start marketing things to those young people. Or somebody tags that they've been to um, a headscarf event, and it's an opportunity for the British police to tag someone as potentially radicalized, or the Dutch police to do the same thing. So I think we're beginning to um, ask the question, what's the flip side of children's opportunities for adults? You know, what kind of opportunities are adults taking advantage of when children expose themselves in these ways online? Which is not to say that children do it naively. Adults, I've met adults who are quite as naive about their identity work online as any of the children I've met. But I just thought I'd put that in there. And I found that very refreshing in our panel, certainly. Thank you, Shaku. Cohen, do you want to come back? Um, yes, Shaki, I think you raised such an important point exactly on the flip side. Uh, I wanted to emphasize a sort of an uplifting story, but I think you're very right, particularly when we look at the flip side, and particularly for those most marginalized young people, uh, particularly refugee, uh, refugees. I've been seeing, particularly over the course of the last couple of years, more and more stories uh, where young people are so aware of that all the digital traces that they and that they leave are sources of surveillance and particularly uh, for those most marginalized so still uh, young people still for example in asylum procedures or awaiting such procedures uh, there's a great awareness that um, uh, increasingly as part of asylum procedures uh, governments and organizations step into social media profiles and personal digital archives such as uh, smartphones uh, so what we are seeing uh, in, in the latest in, in recent years is that people are actively delete, deleting their social media profiles or curating uh, uh, more hidden profiles in, in languages not accessed by government officials or less or more under the radar. But particularly with regards to how people have been deleting material from their smartphones, for example. Um, uh, uh, 
wanting to delete the possible evidence of, of, of journeys. This also means that in many instances, people's diaries, people's photos of lost loved ones have gone lost. Uh, so I think this, uh, I think it's an important and also uh, uh, caution to not overemphasize the opportunities, but exactly to see this in, in context and in its situatedness. Uh, not even to speak about the political economy question, but I'm guessing that we can return to that as well. Thank, thanks for raising that point, Jaco. Thank you, Cohen. Um, other um, thoughts from about what you all variously said? I mean, I think one thought that occurs to me um, is in a way to think about online opportunities for children is to kind of focus on um, questions of agency. And you've all kind of touched on the agency in, in different ways. Um, but there is there is that that kind of the the flip side is in a sense a wider contextual point about the the larger context of children's lives and i think that's um where um their their agency runs out and the um the power of the adults around them or indeed the um the the society and and, and culture around them structure opportunities for them in particular ways and create all kinds of unintended um consequences as well as those that that children themselves might might have in mind so i think there are some really interesting questions about how we um whether we can conceptualize the idea of the context in which the child is growing up. Um, context is one of researchers' favorite words and it's very rarely um, kind of unpacked and, and maybe it can't be so. But I know that for many um, adults in different roles, you know, whether they are producing digital technology or whether they're the parents trying to enable opportunities for children or um, those who, 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 who are the kind of the duty bearers for children's rights as, as governments, you know, there are, there, there are lots of ways in which people, adults are trying to um, scaffold or create certain kinds of opportunities. Um, as you said, maybe that just takes us straight to questions of, of political economy. Um, I mean, maybe I can ask Jochen um, to say something about how you see the opportunities being conceptualized from those who are designing these robots. And um, do they work with a similar frame to those of the academics studying the consequences or do they maybe have, I don't know what actually what kind of concepts they, they might be working with there. And is that a, an engagement that you yourself um, undertake? No, I have no contact with, mm. with um, uh, roboticists or people mm. designing robots, mm. I believe. And this is a subjective impression. I have to say that um, in the uh, community of uh, researchers on, on social robots, um, there isn't a growing awareness, for example, that, you know, these um, design features like cuteness, uh, Aaron, you, you saw this, that this is ingrained in, 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 many, of, of how, in, in many of these robots, uh, may not be such an innocent practice. Um, and that uh, with this cuteness, cuteness may, may come certain, you know, assumptions that are sort of elicited in children um, and may, you know, essentially be pretty deceptive about what a robot is. And I think in this respect, um, I mean, Sherry Turkle is probably one of the most prominent uh, voices for years uh, who has criticized um, this whole field. So I would say again, uh, from my personal point of view, that there is a growing awareness of these things. But on the other hand, I would assume there's, of course, also an economic interest um, in selling uh, uh, these products and uh, 
you know, that's, that's, that's always, I think, the eternal, um, you know, uh, tension that, that we need to see. But the awareness of can children, um, is it okay that children are deceived by social robots with, with, with the things they already uh, are able to do? Um, is that uh, something we would accept? That's an ongoing discussion, certainly in, in, uh, academic, uh, in the academic, um, among academics and, and robots, robot ethnicists. Mm. Thank May you. I, Sonia, mm. add uh, a little bit on this? But I would say that um, the, these deceptive features, and I, I wonder if Jochen uh, agrees with me, uh, are now more, um, more of an issue when it comes to disembodied social robots. So I'm thinking about small speakers, I'm thinking about voice assistants, which are actually more um more uh, natural uh, more um simulative than 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 actually embodied uh, social robots um and this is the way that artificial intelligence is actually being naturalized in in uh, children's homes and and uh, and their feminine environment uh, because i've been um uh, we have a pepper robot uh, at our department and we have spent some time uh, in the past months uh, programming the robot and uh, and is actually uh, much more limited than than artificial intelligent embodied in in, in uh, smart speakers and, and virtual assistants. So, you, um, for example, my, my five year old daughter was actually fascinated by uh, Pepper, but when I told her that actually Pepper is stupid, and uh, we are telling Pepper what to say and how to interact with, uh, we are scripting the, the the code of the robot. Then um, the, the the deception and the fascination is actually um, more uh, narrow, narrowed down and limited. Um, I'm beginning to have many questions about robots in my mind, um, but um, I can see that questions are building up in the Q&A and perhaps I can turn to Maria at this point and um, Maria, um, feel free to comment on anything you've heard and, and also bring in questions from the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Sonia. Um, I had a list of my own questions because the uh, the questions from the audience were quite uh, quiet at the beginning. But I'm going to leave this for now uh, and not not be selfish, uh, because I think we have a, a lot of interesting questions uh, from the audience. Um, I wanted to start with uh, one was uh, which was directly. Um, addressed to Johan, which was asking about uh, children with autism uh, and how, uh, whether there are any examples of how they benefit from interactions with social robots. So there was an invitation to um, expand on that. But I also want to open this question uh, a little bit more to address the work of uh, the other speakers, because I think there's something about marginal groups or maybe disadvantaged groups or whatever we want to call them. Um, groups who might be facing particular difficulties. Uh, there was mentioned of mental health, of migration, um, all sorts of issues that were raising from your presentation. So maybe the, the rest of you can also think of, of examples where uh, digital technologies are offering opportunities to these kind of groups, which we might think of as, as vulnerable. Uh, so maybe Jochen, do you want to, to go first and um, ask the uh, answer the, the more narrow questions, and then we can open up for other examples uh, like this? Yeah, thank you. So, so as I said in my talk, the, the, the assumption generally in this line of research is that children on the autism spectrum um, feel 
let me put it that we're less overwhelmed in a situation with robots because the cues of social robots, the cues that they send are, are simply fewer than those in, in, in human, human interactions. And what has been studied, for example, is to what extent children then engage, uh, children on the autism spectrum, engage in spontaneous play, engage in spontaneous interactions, um, read certain cues and react to these. Um, on my slide, and I, I think you can rewatch it on, um, on the website of, of the project, there is a reference to a study by um, Kabibian, and you may want to check that out. He really reviews the literature in 2013. There are some more recent uh, reviews. So if you want to know them, uh, please send me an email, whoever asked this question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Cohen, I thought that this question speaks a lot to, to your work and uh, groups that we might be seeing as, as much. You, know, you, were, um, you were giving us some examples. Does, does anything come to mind as um, sort of a good opportunity that arises for uh, these kind of groups that you've been working with? Uh, th thanks for that question. I think uh, uh, generally it's very important to think about when we're working with or on uh, so-called so marginalized and vulnerable groups to see how they themselves would uh, uh, position themselves and what labels they themselves would use. And I've been, uh, uh, when working with uh, an international transition classes school, uh, which is a school tailored to young newcomers here in the Netherlands uh, who offer a two-year language training project, uh, our language training curriculum, uh, we've been so um, uh, also moved somehow to see how, for example, dominant understandings of media literacy uh, that we might have in, in the Netherlands and in Western Europe uh, do not always uh, account for the media literacies and the critical literacies that young refugees, for example, bring to the table. Um, when we had discussions about, uh, uh, let's say, uh, censorship uh, and media production uh, or being aware of the political economy of platforms, uh, actually, we could, as researchers, learn a lot from how these young people navigated uh, those structures. So it, for us, this was also an important re reminder to think about what uh, uh, um, kind of what is the point of our departure when we theorize, for example, media literacy? Where does it come from? Or when we theorize identity, what are kind of our assumptions? Mm -hmm. And I think here, by listening and, uh, and and collaborating with young people to understand their practices, uh, uh, we can we can learn a lot. Um, and in terms of empowerment, what we saw, for example, as part of also this project, is where young people produced films uh, on their smartphones. Uh, and uh, we collaborated with a local film festival when we had those films up on the big screen. This was also such a transformative moment where they saw that their narratives about themselves, where they counted lots of stereotypes, uh, were then seen by a general audience. Uh, 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 that really helped us kind of uh, create a unique moment, but also shift the frame uh, from a kind of personal initiative to a collective onwards. Mm. Thank you. Um, we don't necessarily have to go to all the speakers for each of the, the questions, but uh, I wanted to uh, check whether Shakur or Giovanna have anything to add to this one. I, I think because you were nodding at the beginning. Let's do a full round then. Yeah, I, um, I kind of wanted to bring in three points. One from what I talked about, which is that there isn't necessarily for children and young people this great divide between, um, between online and offline. And so old media also plays a massive role in perhaps socializing us towards what we do with robots or how we imagine robotic toys or how we interact with them. And 10 years ago, when I was doing a lot of work around children and um, 
sort of um, intelligent toys, there was the, the buzzword of interactivity was huge. And of course, that takes us towards the political economy side, because interactivity was the thing that was being used to sell lots of not particularly smart toys um, at very, very cheap prices. And, you know, all the way from from Pokemon upwards. But I think we need to remember that the frameworks for interpreting, analyzing and understanding how robots behave have been there a long time ago, perhaps even in 2D media. So comic books have set a way of interacting. And actually, before there were these kinds of interactive media, people were interacting imaginatively with all kinds of stories and narratives around um, imaginary characters. And often they were imbuing them with emotional intelligence way beyond what they have. That leads to my second point, which is those characters and the emotional intelligence of those characters, the way they come across now on screen when the comic books are brought to life or in the life of a, you know, a walking, talking Peppa Pig, um, those kinds of things are only as good as their makers. And therefore, um, in the work that I did previously and in talking to and, and, and discussing with the makers of these kinds of digital games, one of the constraints they have is that if something is not going to, you know, they, they, have, they may have brilliant ideas, for instance, about making high tech, low tech, which is good in environments where there's not much energy or where you can't consume much energy or in making things for children with very specific, but very, very small numbers of parents who will buy these things for their children with very specific um, learning needs or, or emotional engagement needs, it's very difficult to get funded. And the field is very, very narrow in terms of who's doing the designing, tends to be a certain age group, tends to be male, tends to be white, tends to be global north. And even if you go to the global south and you find people making brilliant things, they cannot get their prototypes funded. So, so, you know, we were back to the, you know, the chicken and egg. How do you, how do you get more diversity into this? How do you tailor it to the needs of the specific parents with particular, you know, children with particular needs? And, and there needs to be a pro-social approach on the part of games designer companies and funders of these things. And there isn't yet. There just simply isn't. And so it is a children's right to have things designed for them in particular ways, but it's not happening. Which brings me to the last point, which is actually the very last people often consulted um, in the global south are the children with those particular learning needs. So it's not just that they're in the global south, it's that there are children with autism or parents who have children with autism in the global south, um, maybe in rural areas who have not yet got diagnosed or but they know something's up and they just have absolutely no access to any of these things. Whereas in the north, I've worked with people who run maker fairs, which are amazing and wonderful arena for testing out digital agency. And so it's also about spreading those opportunities, which are not necessarily the digital opportunities, but it's the opportunity to digital or to do digital uh, much more widely. Thank you, Shaku. Giovanna? Yeah, I wanted precisely to, to add on, on this last point, so the, the opportunities to the digital, um, because I think that most of the uh, uh, the hope that underpins uh, the, the public discourse on, on digital opportunities is actually that uh, the digital offers or should offer children uh, the possibility to overcome the structural inequalities and the personal vulnerabilities that they face in their everyday lives. Uh, but this is often not the case. Uh, and this is another way that, um, that I strongly believe in the notion of affordances as socially situated. So let me just give a, uh, briefly a very practical example. Um, so the data we collected uh, throughout Europe 
um, during the pandemic, during the lockdowns, uh, actually showed that uh, even in countries where uh, the, the internet penetration rate is 99%, um, or even when uh, children were provided with uh, additional devices by their schools, then there were inequalities in access, uh, be it because uh, it was um, five people, uh, the parents and the children all together in the same house being online either for uh, uh, remote learning or for work from home uh, and this created connectivity issues or because the devices were not um, updated enough for them to use uh, all the, the software and the platforms that they were required to use. Uh, so again, um, they, they are uh, virtually an opportunity, but the way they are enacted, taken up and, and materialized in, in their uh, everyday social contexts, uh, it, it's uh, differentiated, it's, it's various, and it's not necessarily an opportunity for all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I think one of the questions actually uh, picked this up, this kind of complexity that uh, you were just uh, describing, Giovanna, and I'm going to take this. This is from uh, social media. So if anyone wants to post questions there, feel, uh, feel free to do that. Uh, so the question uh, says online opportunities don't necessarily lead to benefits, uh, just as online risks don't always lead to harm. So how do you conceptualize pathways to, to well-being? And if well-being is not necessarily a concept that all of you have worked with, uh, I guess we can rephrase the question slightly to uh, how do we know that things are working well for, for the benefit of children? What, what, what can we say about the, the, the positive outcomes and when this happens? Uh, and what is the effect on, on well-being if you've worked on, on this? And maybe I can just add to that question one more layer, because there's been several, um, uh, or, or, or one possible answer to the question is that you asked the children, did it benefit you? And I think among us, there have been several um, uh, other ways of thinking too, and perhaps some doubts about whether children always um, know best, as it were, what is beneficial for them, or what are the opportunities, or... Um, or as, as, as Shaku eloquently said, um, sometimes children feel very um, empowered and benefited by something that society is horrified by. Um, so we're not, it's not simple to listen to children, though that sounds like a kind of child rights way of understanding what that pathway might be. I'll just jump in because obviously one of the ways of finding an answer to that question, as you said, Sonia, is to do extended interviews with children. And I'll just say something perhaps a little methodological here, because I think all of us have interviewed children and families. And um, and I think there's a difference between doing the one-off interviews, even if they're very long and in-depth, and doing extended observations and then interviewing over a period of time. Because what I found was if you ask direct questions about, you know, how has this affected you or benefited you or helped you in a a shorter space of time. And I've done this in school settings with teachers around, you know, media education and digital media, and also in family settings, people tend to move immediately towards the things that are uppermost in their mind, something that happened yesterday or the day before, and they'll talk about an argument maybe that was provoked by, you know, wanting to put away the iPad and the child not wanting to put it away, bedtime, somebody's homework was suffering. So the parent will give you the narrative of, we bought them this in order to help with the education, and instead they're, they're using it for X, Y, or Z, you know, whether that happens to be, you know, social media after bedtime or whatever. If you interview children separately, they tell you something different from what their parent tells you. 
if you go back repeatedly and you watch parents and you watch children, you'll see frequently how what children do and parents do and how they emotionally respond to the social media and to technology, including digital toys and, and, and mobile phones, which I would argue are actually treated like little robotic pets and, and loved and, and cared for. And, you know, the horror if your phone gets wet or whatever, um, you see that parents do very similar things that they're castigating their children for and that we use technology in very similar ways and that we are also um, losing our sense of attentivity in particular formats. So for instance, we'll flick back and forth perhaps between something very serious and something quite lighthearted as children will also do. Whereas a parent will say, oh no, they're not concentrating on their homework because um, this little thing popped up on the screen and they just answered Sonia, she asked them a question. And so I think we need to be aware that different methods of doing research about the answer to this question will provide different answers to the question. And that there are, there are tensions there, as Sonia pointed out, between what parents think they want for their children and what children think they want at any given moment. So I've gone back Back to a family, you know, where someone has said, I, I managed, you know, my child, you know, found a community of online LGBTQ children and came out and this was amazing and wonderful. And two weeks later, I'll go back and the child is curled up under the sofa because they're being bullied online. So it's it's just, it, it really varies. And one has to ask these questions over a long period of time. If I may, Sam, make me join in here. I think Shaku made a very, very important point that um, I, I believe our thinking about opportunities, but also about risks, um, really would benefit from a you know, more longitudinal or long-term perspective. Now, I guess a lot of our research is just, and I mean, because we lack the money, because we lack the time, because we lack the resources, um, you know, just, just one point, one shot. But what Giovanna also said um, some minutes ago, that, you know, children are in the beginning, you know, in terms of robots or robotic toys, uh, in incredibly enthusiastic. It's a novelty effect, right? And then we base all our results on this, you know, initial enthusiasm, but that, you know, really fades off very quickly. And there is some evidence in the literature, but still this that we translate it really into long-term research. And also, you know, children's experiences on that way, you know, um, that I think is still something that we that we miss greatly because it would probably also show us that, you know, um, I think Jacques, it was you who said, you know, by now children don't distinguish between the online and the offline anymore. Giovanna, I think you said there is no longer there is this this hybrid in between the digital and the material, the local and the global, the toys and the medium. I think this is something that we could then really see developing, right? And um, you know, perhaps also seeing that children can learn from other children. And, um, you know, build up a certain repertoire um, in how to deal with, you know, any, anything digital. So I fully, fully support your, your observation here. That is, that is really greatly missing and, and thoroughly needed. Thank you. Uh, I, I think uh, th there's a few questions which uh, lead us uh, towards the, the policy angle of what we've just uh, been saying, because I think all of you in different ways acknowledge that uh, the environment is shaping uh, these opportunities and the way that children experience them. Uh, those that are at the center can benefit and those who tend to, to be pushed to the margins. Uh, so uh, one of the questions around policy was specifically related to datifications and some of the issues that the speakers raised. Uh, but there's also the, the broader questions around what have we learned about the development of platforms that can positively empower children um, and help us design uh, positive support services 
uh, that can provide bigger impact and uh, guidance for children. Uh, so I wonder whether you have any thoughts on, on the positive lessons that we've learned, whether for industry, for policy, for regulation. I'm happy to answer because I'm working on things like this, but I feel like I've talked a lot. So Maria, maybe somebody else should go. It's hard when you're not in, in the room and it's a digital environment and I don't want to point <laughs> to people either. So Shaku, maybe you can start first and then others will jump in uh, after you. Well, I'll just briefly speak because I've talked with several platforms, um, people who are working on, on, on hate speech and who are working on trying to reduce the harm that comes to anybody, but also particularly to children. And I'll just give one example of what we were told in, in our research on WhatsApp and Facebook, which was um, that when you have a multilateral, multi-stakeholder team across the world working on something and putting their mind to something, it moves much faster. So for instance, um, around issues of child pornography and both pornography targeted to children and pornography which uses children. As soon as a decision was made to have this multi-stakeholder approach and to use people who are experts in the field and to make a database of the constantly changing ways in which and strategies via which people were trying to put this stuff around, um, things got much better. But until that point, they were just deteriorating and getting worse and worse. And similarly, we found with, with sort of hate speech with children also, you know, children are online all the time. Children can go onto Twitter, even if they're younger than 13, they often things will come up in their searches. So they might search for their favorite footballer and then see 40 or 50 different racist comments against their fa favorite footballer. So around, so we had suggested to the platforms that they actually have a much tighter definition um, and a quicker response to the reporting of hate speech. And I think this would, um, certainly their policy people are very amenable to this. It's, it comes from the top though. So the policy people have to be supported and backed up by the management on this. And it would really increase children's pleasure and reduce the harm of their, you know, their online opportunity. This reminds me, if I can jump in here, um, uh, for the Digital Futures Commission, where we've been investigating play, um, we've been um, asking children about their, their play in, in multiple environments. And it, it makes very salient a, a really obvious, I think, but important point is that we often imagine that children are kind of engaging with their opportunities in child-only spaces. And by and large, children's digital lives are um, intersected with adult lives and are very often in the same kinds of spaces. And so when we, when we have all those discussions about dealing with the kind of the, the hygiene factors, the bullying and the racist hate and so forth that we want to get out of the way in order to enable the sociability to, to flourish, it often gets turned into a kind of an injunction that the children should start being good. The children should behave better and be dutiful citizens and so forth instead of, um, and, and it's quite a challenge to think how it is that we're going to, um, you know, whether we want the overall online world to be more civil or to be more, um, there to be more intervention in the nature of that, that space. Um, and that kind of struggle about uh, recognizing how children are enjoying their opportunities in the same world as everyone else, not, not kind of off in a funny little walled garden that, um, doesn't bother adults, but there, there's a lot of, um, politics around that, um, as we're seeing um, in the in the policy world, I think in a number of, of countries at the moment. But it, it, yeah, I mean, I think generally, you know, it, it really raises the question, 
how are children to enjoy their opportunities in a rather crowded and often conflictual um, uh, and often unequal uh, space in which other actors are also doing whatever they want to be doing. So the digital world, um, I don't know if it has the kind of um, spaces for sociality or I'm just thinking of, of Jochen's work or um, of kind of um, uh, civility that and, and privacy that um, I know that uh, Giovanna has, has worked on. You know, part of the struggle is what is the nature of that world in which children um, and, and distinctively perhaps the affordances of the digital world to um, um, enable problems, enable difficulties that children then are ill-equipped to struggle to, to face. Mm. <laughs> Cohen, I feel like this must be a, a, a particular, um, there must be some particular issues here um, in terms of kind of civility and spaces to, spaces to be and to express oneself um, when one's thinking about children living sometimes in quite extreme circumstances and um, distinctly unsupported um, often, I imagine, by, by the adult society around them. Uh, yeah, I, I was thinking how, how many young people in interviews and, and focus groups and, and school observations shared those experiences of where very often the burden was on them, on those who are already uh, vulnerable to call out or to... Um, to point at injustices or to counter, to take countermeasures. But I was also thinking uh, back about uh, the methodological, uh, methodological discussion that Shaku so importantly foregrounded um, on how uh, very often insights on uh, uh, young people and children's digital practices changed over time uh, and how as researchers we can uh, learn about this only to kind of longitudinal engagement. And uh, what in our research was, um, we found a way to make this generative by uh, uh, trying to absorb this longitudinal uh, kind of aspiration into sessions where we would invite young people to share either with us or, or with fellow young people uh, by connecting their smartphone to a beamer and talk to their archives as a sort of uh, scrolling back to their own uh, uh, ways of identifying over time, uh, which is also a way to look at how identities are unstable and how opportunities seized online differ and how at certain points indeed the empowerment stands out and at other points uh, more um, aspects of uh, exactly those that you labeled as hygienic <laughs> uh, come to the fore, such as racism, bullying, etc. Uh, so I think there is also uh, lots to gain by looking at how young people themselves document those experiences and document them on their phones, but also in exactly on their, uh, on their platforms. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a paper that I just looked up by Brady Hoberts and Sian Lincoln called the scroll back methodology, uh, which looks at scrolling back on social media platforms, social media timelines and smartphone archives with young people, which uh, might offer further cues here. Maria, we are um, coming to the last um, couple of minutes. And I don't know if um, we answered all the questions or if you want to give a quick overview of questions um, not yet addressed or whether we um, merely pass our apologies to those who ask more questions that we could address here. I think we could have addressed a bit more. Uh, there's, um, there's questions about uh, participation uh, of mm. children and whether uh, 
actually th these opportunities create a better participation uh, of children and also uh, some of the questions relate to uh, the level of interaction. I think there's a, a lot around the online and offline uh, kind of division and uh, do we know what what is working and what isn't but perhaps uh, just because as Sonia said there's a, a few minutes left maybe uh, we can hear the, the final thoughts from each of the speakers on where they see things developing and where is the possibility of moving the, the direction of development into a positive way of dodging maybe some of the, the bullets that are coming our way uh, with the fast development of technologies. What are the kind of things that we need to look out for uh, in order to create uh, maybe a, a safer and more engaging world in which children have a um, better opportunity to, to shape the environment in the way that is useful and beneficial for them. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know whether Sonia, do you want to, to take the order in which the, the speakers uh, spoke? Or no, the, let's the go in the reverse order this reverse time. Let's ask Jochen to uh, uh, kick us off. Jochen, what change would you like to see that would bring better opportunities for children, if I paraphrase correctly? Well, I mean, related to what I was saying and, and what I what I tried to conclude my, my little <clears throat> statement with um, is this, this idea that, you know, children, as let's say some 20 years ago, at least in you know, rich countries, they were confronted more and more with the internet as a social medium, perhaps 25 years ago by now. I think we should now realize that children more and more will be confronted with um, interaction with machines, with automated communication, you know, and mm. to, exactly, yeah, that, that is, a, is a non-verbal <laughs> comment, that, yes. that is a non-verbal comment, because there are a lot of, you know, risks that whether you, you know, um, think along uh, in, in the tradition, Giovanna put forward the dataification of childhood, or whether you have the industry perspective with, you know, even more data from even, you know, closer context that you, you know, data that you can contextualize with other data, these kind of things. Um, I believe there is a lot of work uh, to be done um, and um, to, you know, prepare children for, for um, these changes that not tomorrow and not the day after tomorrow uh, will affect them, but certainly in the next uh, decade or so. So that is certainly a change that I would like to see um, or a change, let me put it that way, that I would like us to become more aware of than we are currently. I think we, we are very much, and it's, Absolutely okay, thinking in this, you know, social media, internet kind of digital world, but there is much more. And um, these hybrid forms that Giovanna uh, uh, presented, uh, that, that Chaku was alluding to, um, I think are very important to take into account also in our theorizing. We're, we're literally about to be um, turned off, I think. So I'm going to see if the others have like a, a one word, this is what I want to see, um, or um, uh, Giovanna? Yeah, I could speak for hours but it's just that um, we need a new business model uh, that does not monetize um, yeah. children's and, and users data yeah well said good Karen. i think listening to young people rather than speaking about them from industry research and the media could uh, yield further opportunities for sure yeah absolutely 
Mine would be for, for researchers, really, don't fetishize the digital in any way. See it as very much a continuity with everything in life, the inequalities and the good parts of it, good parenting, etc. It's all a continuum. But also, just like Cohen said, the more diversity of voices you have, the better. Brilliant. Thank you. You've been a very um, thoughtful um, set of speakers and panel, and I'm, I'm feeling very um, uh, inspired and provoked to go and check out the sources that you recommended and the different perspectives that you're uh, variously drawing on. Um, so um, thank you so much and thank you to Maria for um, finding your way through the um, questions and apologies to those whose questions we didn't manage to get to. But um, we will um, um, post the recording on the core website um, soon and um, do we do invite further engagement with uh, everyone uh, with this work and, and the work of everyone here. So thank you all very much indeed. Thank you, Sonia. Thank you, Core. <laughs>